This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Good morning, church. Happy fourth week of Advent. All right, anyone know where we get the word Advent from? Well, it comes from the Latin, adventre, which means cheesy Hallmark movie. Well, you got to do better than that, right? This is the very start. Cheesy Hallmark movie. Uh, That's a little better. All right. Actually, adventre means to come to. And from these Latin words, we get the normal English language usage of the arrival of something or someone that is important or of note. For instance, we could say, with the advent of penicillin, fewer people died of pneumonia. Or we could say, the advent of the airplane changed travel. But advent is not just the arrival of something important. It also refers to the arrival of someone that is important or of note. And that's the kind of advent that we celebrate during this season and hopefully every day. The advent of the most important someone that has ever appeared. The arrival on planet Earth of the Son of God, the incarnate Jesus Christ. This morning, I want us to look at three different advents, three different appearances of something or someone of note. We'll organize our thoughts around these three points. First of all, the advent of sin, the advent of a Savior, and we're going to spend most of our time this morning on the advent again. But before we jump in, let's remember what one author said. Every generation knows it isn't the quality of the preaching that counts, but but the faithfulness of God. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Heath. So let's pray now that God will faithfully use my poor, lisping, stumbling tongue to work his will in our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do lean on your faithfulness this morning as we look at these Advent events. Father, may your name be glorified in all that I say this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work amongst us now to open our hearts to hear what you would have us to receive. Encourage the tired. Strengthen the weak. Save the lost. Jesus, it's your name we pray these things. Amen. Well, in the very first sentences of the Bible, the very first words of the Bible actually introduce us to God. In the very first Two chapters of the book of Genesis, we meet a being whose power and might and goodness we struggle to comprehend. We meet God, the creator, who from absolutely nothing, with no raw materials, just the word of his mouth, God called into being a perfect world. And into that perfect world, he places our first parents, Adam and Eve. And we know that in the situation described in those first two chapters, it was a special time, and it was characterized by two special things. We had innocent people, and we had a perfect world. The advent of sin changed all of that. We don't know how much time passes between the ending of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. I always thought it would be interesting to have more detail on what was life like in the garden, but we don't. God exactly knew what we needed to give us in Scripture. But we do know what happened. Satan deceived Eve. Eve sinned. Adam stood there like a bump on a log watching. 
And instead of helping his wife, saving his wife, Adam sinned too. The advent of sin took just six verses. And as a result of what happened in those six verses, the two special things in the garden became two terrible tragedies. The innocent became guilty, and the perfect world became a broken world. This is why no one celebrates the advent of sin, because with the advent of sin came judgment and death. Well, you may be thinking to yourself, that really stinks for Adam and Eve. Why should I care about the advent of sin? Well, that's because just as we have inherited our physical form, our physical nature from our first parents, we also have inherited their sin nature. Paul makes this point very clearly in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Paul elaborates on this even further in verse 15 saying, many died by the trespasses of one man. So just like your physical form has been passed to you from your parents and from their parents and from their parents, so too has your sin nature from your parents and from their parents and from their parents all the way back to Adam and Eve. And in every human life, in the life of everyone sitting in this room, our sin nature and the sinful actions that it produces are disappointingly evident, aren't they? We know what we ought to do, but we don't do it. And we know what we ought not to do, and we do it anyway. And with sin comes judgment. God demonstrated this very clearly in the garden when he issued his judgments against Adam and Eve with the advent of sin. And boy, it is certainly easy for us to understand when we are the party that is sinned against, when we are the aggrieved party, when we are hurt, damaged, injured, slandered, when that happens, when we are sinned against, we understand the need for judgment, the need for justice, the need for things to be set right. In 2008, I made an investment in a foreign currency trading fund. Kind of an interesting thing I did. My business partners did likewise. Others I knew, such as my father, some of his church friends had already made the investment. And they knew the fund manager very well. At least they thought they did. One of the investors was a family friend of ours who'd been a missionary in Africa for 40 years. And he not only invested with this man, asked him to manage his retirement funds, this man even sat on his mission board. Well, on May 23rd, 2009, about a year after making the investment, one of my business partners saw an article in the Houston Chronicle stating that the Security and Exchange Commission had accused this fund manager of fraud and was freezing all of the assets in all of his funds. Turns out we had invested in a Ponzi scheme. Our money had been stolen from us. Well, in Ephesians 4.26, Paul writes, in your anger... Do not sin. I think it's an interesting verse, right? It doesn't say, do not sin by being angry. No, it says, in your anger, do not sin. So clearly, there is some sort of anger that in and of itself is not sinful. This is the kind of anger that's born from injustice. The kind of anger that comes from seeing the perversion of the good. The anger that rises up in us when we see a bully. Maybe it's the anger that Jesus would have felt. It's seeing the courtyard of the temple 
turned into a marketplace. It's a righteous anger. The right response of a good God to the presence of evil. The more I understood the depth and the depravity of the crime against me, the crime against my family, my friends, the crime against our missionary friend, the more I wanted to see justice for the criminal. I wanted to see him punished. Sin requires judgment. Sin requires punishment. But with the measure I use, it will be measured back to me. My desire for justice and punishment in the face of the sin against me serves to remind me of my sin against the law and the goodness of God. It reminds me of my own sin nature. As Paul writes in Romans 7, I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. This is a struggle with the sin nature, and every act of sin springs from that nature, and it all traces back to the fall, to the advent of sin. Listen to the depths of emotion in Paul's words as he writes, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Well, in this Christmas season, we celebrate the answer to Paul's agonizing cry, don't we? In fact, Paul answers his own question in the very next verse in Romans 7. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The glorious outburst by Paul introduces our second point and our second advent, the advent of a Savior. And in that advent, a baby was born in Bethlehem that would deliver us forever from the problem of sin. Listen to how the Apostle John describes the advent of a Savior in 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now that is a reason to celebrate. Just like my Ponzi scheme operator, and just like me, we are all sinners in need of judgment and punishment. But our judgment and punishment can fall on somebody else, on God himself. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the reason we celebrate the advent of a Savior. And this is the reason, after the sermon today, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that meal we will be remembering and looking back and celebrating the fact that Jesus gave his life for us. He took our judgment. He took our punishment. Remember the two terrible tragedies in the garden? Innocence became guilt. The perfect world became a broken world. Well, with the advent of a Savior, the process of reversal and restoration had begun. So, if the advent of a Savior initiated this process of restoration, the guilty can now become innocent. What about this broken world that we still live in? This broken world that's around us. Well, this question leads to our third point. Advent again, the second advent of Christ. So, as we talk about these things, it would be hard to estimate the number of words and the number of arguments generated by a discussion of the second advent of Christ. So instead of digging into the many, many elements of that topic that spark division and dissension, I'm going to simply point us to four 
fundamental truths about the second advent of Christ. These are central to Orthodox Christianity. As one pastor I heard speak on this topic said, Christianity is certainly more than these four points, but it is not less. The first truth of the advent again, the second advent, is that Jesus will return to earth in bodily form. Just 40 days after the risen Christ exited the tomb, he was meeting with his disciples one last time. And at the conclusion of that conversation with them, after Jesus' last words to them, we read in Acts 1, After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus Christ will return. Just as he ascended in physical, bodily form, he will return. So truth number one about the second advent, Jesus Christ will return in bodily form. Now, as we saw earlier, we were talking about the advent of sin. That brought the advent of death. In the garden before that, there was no end to life. There was no end to perfect fellowship with God. But with sin came death. God told Adam that for dust you are and to dust you will return. And sadly, this is an obvious and observable truth. And it has been for years and centuries and millennia. But what is not so observable... What's not observable at all, really, is that our souls live on. While hanging on the cross, Jesus comforted the thief dying alongside him by saying, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. For this thief, the promise was not that his essence would reincarnate again in some new physical form, or that he would enter into a deep sleep of suspended animation, or that he would simply cease to be. Instead, Christ promised that at death, the soul of the thief would immediately be ushered into glory. Even now, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the heavenly Jerusalem is populated with the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So the second fundamental truth about the advent again, the second advent of Christ, is like Christ, the dead will be raised to once again soul will be married to physical body. Whether righteous or unrighteous, whether in heaven or in hell, Scripture clearly teaches there will be a general resurrection on the last day. In John 5, Jesus says this very clearly, saying, A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. But this will not be just a simple reanimation of our flesh. This is not simply people that have died being raised to life. No, this resurrection is an entirely different kind of body. And what will it be like? I'm not sure. But Paul tells us in Philippians 3.21 that Jesus Christ will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. And John says the same thing in 1 John 3.21 Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We 
shall be like him. Our physical form will be like the physical form of the resurrected Christ in some way. What does it mean? Well, one author has described it this way. Jesus appears as a human being with a body that in some ways is quite normal and can be mistaken for a gardener or a fellow traveler on the road. Yet the stories also contain, and this marks them out as some of the most mysterious stories ever written, definite signs that his body has been transformed. It is clearly physical, but it comes and goes through locked doors. It is not always recognized, and in the end, it disappears into God's space, heaven. George Eldon Ladd, in his A Theology of the New Testament, wrote, The New Testament does not picture the resurrection of Jesus in terms of the resuscitation of a corpse, but as emergence within time and space of a new order of life. And Paul says this so beautifully in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound... The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and when the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Truth number two. The dead will be raised to life. Now, the scriptures don't tell us much of anything about the state of the resurrected bodies of the unsaved, those who died in their sin. But we know that they too will be raised. And sadly for them, death has not been conquered. For them, the sting of the second death awaits. And that leads us to our third truth. I've established that Jesus is coming back. We've established that the dead have been raised to life. So what do we believe that Jesus will do then? Well, the Apostles' Creed helps us a bit. It answers this question. It gives us our third truth. He will come to judge the living and the dead. Listen to the Apostle John as he describes in Revelation 20 what is to come. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, a great many people are uncomfortable with the idea of hell. A great many Christians are uncomfortable with the idea of hell. As R.C. Sproul has said, it is this doctrine, perhaps more than any other, that strains even the Christian's loyalty to the teaching of Christ. But that's exactly what it is. It is a teaching of Christ. In fact, almost all of the biblical teaching that we have about hell comes from Christ himself, directly from Jesus. Jesus said more about hell than Daniel, Isaiah, Paul, John, and Peter 
put together. Now at the trails, we believe in preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God, even those parts that are not popular or those parts that an unbelieving world would consider out of date or out of fashion. But truth is not determined in a popularity contest. So what is hell then? Well, Sproul offers this answer. The Bible describes hell as a place of outer darkness, a lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal separation from the blessings of God, a prison, a place of torment where the worm doesn't turn or die. Now, perhaps this language is symbolic, but even if that's the case, these words, these strong words are symbolic of something very real. And it sounds like they are straining to describe just how terrible it is. So Christ will return, the dead will be raised, and then judgment. And then that final judgment, sin will be condemned and sinners will be punished. This is truth. But praise God that as we saw earlier, Jesus Christ came in that first advent, the advent of a savior. And as he came, he came as a sacrifice for sinners. He came to take our judgment, to take our punishment. So for those of us who have trusted in Christ, judgment holds no fear. Listen to the words of Christ himself in John 5, 24. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but is crossed over from death to life. The Apostle John reiterates this point in 1 John 4, writing that because of the love of Christ for us and because of his atoning death, we will have confidence in the day of judgment. Yes, there will be a day of judgment, but Christian, you will not stand condemned. That brings us to the fourth key truth about the second advent, the advent again. The world will be restored. When my daughter Abby was little, she came crying to my wife Sally and she said, I don't mean to be rude, but heaven sounds kind of boring. She's very well-mannered, my daughter. She did not think it would be fun to sit on a cloud all day and play a harp. It's a shame that we Christians have allowed this picture of our eternal home to take such hold in the popular consciousness. Yes, of course there is a heaven. This is where the dead in Christ are today. Your loved ones who profess to saving love and saving faith in Christ. My loved ones who have professed to saving faith in Christ and countless generations before them that have done likewise. We don't exactly know what the place is like, but we know that God the Father is enthroned there, that Jesus Christ is there, and he told the thief that it was paradise. But scripture tells us that in the second advent, we will somehow live in a new heavens and a new earth. Somehow, we will experience and enjoy this spiritual heavenly world that we cannot see today, along with a radically improved version of earth. I like what Spurgeon said in an 1873 sermon entitled, The World on Fire. Spurgeon said, this world, so far as we know it, will not cease to be. It will pass through the purifying flame. And then it may be the soft and gentle breath of almighty love will blow, on a, blow upon it and cool it rapidly. And the divine hand will shape it as it cools into a paradise more fair than that which bloomed in Eden. 
We believe from various things which are hinted at at Scripture, though we would not dogmatize, that this world will be refitted and renovated. And in that sense, we expect new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Luther used to say that the world is now in its working clothes and that by and by it will be dressed in its Easter garments of joy. I love that. The world is now in its working clothes, but soon it will be dressed in its Easter finest. But of all the things I like most about that Spurgeon quote, perhaps I like best that he says, these things are just not clearly articulated and fully described in Scripture. They are hinted at, and therefore we should not be dogmatic. We just don't have a full picture. But we do know that we will not be sitting on a cloud and playing a harp all day. And we know that whatever it is, and however we experience it, it will be the thing that we were designed for. It will be the fulfillment of our every hope and longing. Well, we've looked back with sadness on the advent of sin. We've looked back with rejoicing to the advent of a Savior. We've even looked forward with anticipation to the advent again, the second advent. So what do we do with this information? What impact should it make in our lives? For the non-Christian, for those that are outside of Christ, I pray that the impact of this message would remind them that sadly they still stand to bear the judgment and punishment for their sin. May the reality of the second advent, the reality of hell, and the reality of the gracious gift of life offered by Christ move their hearts to repentance and move their hearts towards Jesus. What about us? What about the life of the believer? What impact should these truths make in our life? In 2 Peter 3.11, Peter asks and answers the same question. Since all these things shall be dissolved, he writes, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. It's worth noting how often Jesus and the writers of the New Testament letters, like we just saw in 2 Peter, link their discussions of future glory with a call to live holy and godly lives, to remain obedient to the commands of Christ, even as we walk out that time until his coming. These admonitions create a tension between faith and works, between the knowledge that we are saved by faith alone and these calls to produce good works. Which, which is it? Well, the answer is that both are true. We know that living a holy and godly life does nothing to earn the saving merit that we need. That comes from Christ alone. But we should strive to live a holy and godly life to show a dying world the transforming power of Christ in our lives. And we should strive to live a holy and godly life as thanksgiving to him for what he's done for us. Well, what about Peter's admonition to look forward to the day of God and speed its coming? What in the world does that mean? How are we, mere mortal men and women, going to have an impact on the timeless and eternal plans of omnipotent God of the universe? Well, to help us understand this, let's just look one verse back from the admonition of Peter in 2 Peter 3. He writes there, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord is patient and long-suffering, holding back time as long as he can to keep the door for repentance open. 
And that is where we get to play a role. For some reason that I don't understand, in the timeless and eternal plan of God, he is elected to use us, you and me, to play a role in bringing people to repentance. This is the way the sovereign God of the universe elected to expand his kingdom. He has asked you and me to play a part in spreading the gospel and making disciples. If we are to live holy and godly lives as the second advent approaches, we must have a heart for the lost. Now, earlier in the sermon, I told you about the Ponzi scheme that defrauded me, some of my friends and family, even a Christian missionary. Recently, I had breakfast with a friend, and I was shocked to learn that his family, too, had recently been victim of a financial fraud. The details were different, of course, but the results were the same. Financial loss with very little hope for recovery. My friend and I spoke that morning a little bit about judgment, the idea that even if we're not able to recover the stolen monies, we would at least like to see the bad guys pay for their crimes against us. As we discussed the idea or the chances uh, of his thieves ever being caught and brought to judgment, my friend said something that absolutely blew me away. He said, Of course, my prayer is that they repent and that the judgment for their sin falls on the finished work of Christ on the cross. Isn't that amazing? My prayer is that they repent and that the judgment for their sin falls on the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that is exactly the kind of heart we are supposed to have for the lost, even for those who have hurt us. This is how we were supposed to look forward to the day of God and to speed its coming. We are to reach the lost. All right, so who knows what happens one week from today? Anyone? Christmas, okay. I got a little bit better response from the children in the first service. Christmas, that's right. Christmas is one week from today. And as I wrap up this message, I want you to think back to your favorite in most memorable childhood Christmas. Think back, if you will. For some of us, that may be a long, long time ago. And for some of you, that may have been just last year. But do you remember as a child the anticipation that you had leading up to that day? Do you remember how time just seemed to slow to a crawl? Christmas would never, ever get here. Maybe you knew that it was going to be a good Christmas going into it because you had been exceptionally clear with your parents about your hopes and dreams in regards to the toys that you wanted. Maybe even you had seen hints and glimpses or you overheard conversations that led you to have a high expectation for achieving your dreams. And then it was here, Christmas. What a scene. There were toys that you had been dreaming of right there under the tree for you. You would pick up the object of your dreams that you've been dreaming about only to drop it and pick up another object of your dreams. It was a present frenzy. What a morning. After a while, all the presents had been opened. All the surprises had been revealed. Perhaps you got everything you had hoped for. Perhaps you got exactly and precisely the things that you'd been dreaming of. It had been a great morning. 
And by the end of the day, after you'd played with everything you received and everything that your friends had received, you went to bed tired but happy. And the next day, you were still happy about your amazing Christmas, but maybe a little bit less so. Maybe you realized that something you hoped for had not been there. Or maybe, like me, you had already broken some of your new toys. So the next day was fun, but less so. And the day after that really was more like any other day. When the second advent comes, it will not be like Christmas. Yes, there will be glorious surprises and joy and perfection. But when all is made right with the world and creation is restored, it will be more than you could have hoped for. More than you could ever have prayed for. It will be more than you could have imagined. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. The second advent and the world being prepared for us will make your very best Christmas memory like a dull taste. And the joy and the happiness and the perfect fellowship with others and with God that we experience on that first day of the second advent, that will never fade. It will not wear off after a few days. It will not wear off after a thousand years. So if you are fortunate enough to sit in the presence of a child this Christmas morning and watch their utter joy and amazement and happiness around the tree, please remember that you too will have that kind of joy again. You too will have that amazement and that happiness, and not just for one morning, forever. And in the words of C.S. Lewis again, if this opinion is not true, something better is. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for your amazing love for us. We thank you and we praise you for a love strong enough to redeem and restore our souls, even when we were ruled and controlled by a sin nature. We celebrate the first advent of your Son into our world, the advent of our Savior. We celebrate the love that would suffer and die in our place, taking judgment and punishment, the judgment and punishment that we were due. And Father, we look forward to that day when the process of restoration and redemption will be complete, the advent again of your Son into our world. Lord, help us to live holy and godly lives as we wait. Give us a heart of love and compassion for those who do not know you, a heart of love and compassion that leads to action. And so, Father, may we speed the day of your return. Come quickly, Lord. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.